Well, good afternoon. We didn't bother to turn the screen on in, inside here today, so I don't know if we're on the air or not. I can't see anything, but uh, it's good to be with you one way or the other. Where is that thing? Oh, there it is. Ah. <laughs> the professionals are back! <clears throat> Notice that Rich didn't even bother to look. My, you know what? My sweaters are so much brighter um, than they actually are in life. I mean, this is this is a pretty calm, quiet sweater. It really is. And it's the same on either one. That blue is so much brighter, isn't it? Come on. Four K. So you're telling me 4K creates color? I mean, this is this is uh this is one of the Kuji made for people who uh, and we got to be really careful about style today. You know? I mean, uh wow. I hear it's really cold other places. It's pretty cold for us here. It's going to be down to freezing again here in the desert uh, tonight, and it's windy. Um, but, you know, I do bring scarves when I go to places where it's windy and cold and snowy. Uh, but evidently, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Just just thought we'd mention that in passing. <clears throat> Let's not get into that today, please. There are certain topics that take over Twitter that we really don't need to deal with. But... Um, these sweaters, the Kuji sweaters, I get from eBay. Uh, Kuji doesn't make... Well, ever since they moved their manufacturing to China, it's like, who cares? Why, why even bother? Um, but I get everything from eBay, and it's from back in the 90s, early 2000s. And uh, we just, those of us who like these things, just trade them back and forth <coughs> on eBay. Just, you know, you know, whatever. And they had one called Kuji Blues. That's what this is. This is this, like, it's meant to go with jeans. So honestly, this blue is the same blue as you'd have on blue jeans, but it's like fluorescent on this camera. So um, I'm not sure what that means other than the the color intensity is fake. That's just the only way to put it. It's fake. And I had nothing to do with it. Okay. Uh, there's only one other person has controls. Th this here, I didn't have, it's not even plugged in. So I'm, I can't, it's not me. But it's it's somebody else who keeps complaining about not liking Kuji sweaters. But he's making them even brighter. Which tells me that there's a there's a you know subliminal desire on his part that he wishes he had. Um Kuji sweaters that are this bright and, and beautiful. Um anyway. Oh, yeah, well, but that's closer to the actual color, but um, anyway, yeah, that see that's, but no, you're you're sitting there, you seeing what I'm seeing. This is just a standard blue. It's not fluorescent. Anyway, hi folks. <laughs> um, I just actually responded to Ben Zeisloft on Twitter. He, uh. uh Posted some, you know, this, this DEI stuff, Rich and I were talking about right before the program started. Uh, we've been trying to say for a long, long time that this is insanity, just simply on a, on a basic level. Uh, to hire people based upon their skin color or who their great-great-grandparents were or whatever. 
Um, there's just so many areas where if if this nation and this culture is going to continue on, and I'm not sure that this culture needs to in, in certain aspects, but um, that you you hire the best people for the job. And it has nothing to do with their parents or their great-grandparents or great-great-great-grandparents or any of the rest of this insanity that is going on. And there are certain areas that, look, we, we've seen this stuff for decades now, but we've always thought, yeah, but they'd never do it in this area. They'd never do it in the airline industry. They'd never do it with pilots and engineers and maintenance people. No, 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 no. Sanity has to demand that, you know, you can't, you can't have people building airplanes um, who are not going to build them perfectly as well, at least as best as human humanly possible. I mean, you can have parts fail, but, but you, you just, and we, we think this way. We, we put it in the back of our mind, and, and we function that way. And when you get into a plane and you sit next to the window, and I, I much prefer windows uh, to aisles, or let alone the middle. Um, and, you know, I've fallen asleep leaning up against an emergency exit door more than once in my many, 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 many miles. I was at... I think with American, I was at over 700,000 miles when I stopped flying. And that wasn't including a lot of stuff that came before that. So I've flown well, you know, probably 1.5, 1.7 million miles, probably since the 19, late 1980s. And so, yeah, you know, um, 17 hour flights. Uh, back and forth from Australia, and and you just trust that the people that built this were the best people it could could be. And yet you look you look at the world today, and what we're doing, and it's self destruction. It it you know it, when wisdom speaks in scripture and says, uh, "He who he who hates me loves death." Well, secularism has given us the insanity of DEI and all the other associated foolishness. And we're going to reap the rewards. We're going to reap the rewards. I'm telling you. I just said to Ben, I said, we have to do repairs on our RV after every trip. Just the nature of the beast and the interstate highways across the nation, especially in New Mexico and eastern Missouri. (laughs) Wow. And Louisiana. Oh, man. That one spot around... uh, uh oh up in the north northwest part of the state anyways um it's bad really 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 bad and so you know you just bounce that thing around and stuff needs to be repaired in fact thank you um got really good news today i was get i was a little nervous i'll admit i was a little nervous got the big trip coming up and I, i'm asking this audience please be in prayer for this big trip um i need I need to be a good driver. I need to stay healthy. I need to be getting lots of preparation done um, over the next month because I, I pull out in, in less than one month. Um, I mean, what's, what's today? Thursday? Uh, so I pull out four weeks, 
is it four weeks from tomorrow? I think so. Something like that. Uh, somewhere around there. Uh, February 9th. And, uh, you know, we we can't accomplish anything with, A, without your support, but most importantly, with uh, without the Lord's blessings. So please be praying for us. And so we just got word, just got off the phone with the, with the tech that I had talked with for quite some time last evening. Because um, on the last trip, I, you may recall I mentioned the refrigerator stopped working. Now, that's not... It, it was it was sort of cold on the trip, but you you still that's that's a bummer, <laughs> you know. You got, uh, especially on the the travel sections where you're not stopping and and disconnecting the truck. I mean, if I'm only staying overnight, I depending on the spot, I won't disconnect the truck. It'll just I'll just stay connected. Uh, you know, you put the feet down on the on the fifth wheel and take the weight off the truck, but I'll stay hooked up. So next morning, it's just a matter of retracting everything and taking off. Um, so I can't go get anything at that point. A- and so you have to have some fresh food to have to, to you know, just to make a dent meal or something like that. So the refrigerator is sort of important and it had stopped working. And um, nice thing is I've now learned Rich and I were both completely wrong about our the refrigerator. Well, okay, you said it was, it was a ground issue, probably, and but we didn't know, um, and now I do know. Uh, in the last RV, the refrigerator ran on 110 and propane, and it would switch back and forth, which is really cool. We assumed this did the same thing. 12 volt. 12 volt. It's a 12 volt refrigerator. You know, like like plugging into your cigarette lighter? Yeah, it's a 12 volt refrigerator with freezer. Uh 10 cubic feet, 12, I forget what it was. But they're switching to all of it so you can run it off of the battery in your RV, which everybody now has solar. We have 400 watts of solar on the roof, and so it recharges during the day as long as it's there's got some sun and um so it's 12 volt and it doesn't run on propane. We didn't know. Now I know. Uh, I think the people that sold us to us sold to us didn't know that. In fact, there, <laughs> Rich, Rich is going. There were a lot of things they didn't know. Yeah, that's a that's sadly very. There was a lot of things they didn't know. Um. So, <clears throat> anyway, it, it, uh, they found a when they did the grounding, they didn't crimp the wire properly. And you have something go through 20 earthquakes <laughs> every day, and stuff happens. So we have to we have to get stuff repaired. And we thankfully, um, it's got a new roof on it because during it was made during COVID. Uh, I'm not the only one that'll tell you stuff that was made during COVID gonna have problems. The other RV. They didn't bother to lubricate the big ball joint in the tongue that you connect to your truck. So every time I would turn, it was like 7,000 cats were dying in the back of my truck. Uh, and they just, because they didn't lubricate it, because COVID. Ay, COVID. Anyway, um, so uh, it's got a new roof on it. 
because they had not put what did they put like one tenth the amount of adhesive on the roof originally that it was meant to have. So it's got a new roof on it, and the refrigerator is working, and I'm excited about all those things because I don't need to be doing repair work on this next trip, not with five debates and everything else I'm doing on that particular trip. So I said to Ben Zeisloft, but let me tell you, I am not nervous sitting next to the door of my GMC Sierra. <laughs> uh, I would be on any DEI-designed, built, and maintained aircraft. And don't, don't tell me I'm some conspiracy theorist. Um, if you think about it, you would be too, because you, I used to go, yeah, they're going to have, they don't want these things crashing. So they're going to have their, they're going to make sure to have the best people on this. That's not how corporate America works anymore. They've been captured by our own enemies, by our own enemies. And while the West bankrupts itself with expensive energy, the East, the BRICS, uh, India, China, uh, that large conglomeration that's coming together because we're run by idiots, self-destructive idiots, um, they're going to be building coal-fired plants, having cheap electricity, and they're just going to run us into the ground. It's just, and that's, that's the plan. That's the, it's so clear. It's so obvious. And people start to go, well, I can't have it. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And it is. So, yeah, I, um, I'm at least thankful um, that... Well, that's interesting. I, uh, uh, that's not good at all, given that the... Uh, uh, let's see, is it this one here? Oh, that might mess stuff up. Oh, that's going to mess everything up. Yep. I'll get back in and see if we can get the mouse working again. Because um, I think that's what it's plugged into. At least... Oh, no. Oh, okay. It's working now. <laughs> I touched it. And it was, it was got healed. Uh, anyways, um, that's where we are. We got stuff to talk about. Let's get to it. There's going to be people writing in complaining. You spent too much time to get any programs talking about stuff. It doesn't matter. Actually, I was letting you know that, uh, you know, stuff like being able to repair. I, I'm... I'm, I know the roof and the other stuff is warranty stuff because the unit's still fairly new. But there are other things that we have to have done that, that are not warranty. And so when you give to the travel fund, um, that's how we get to travel around and do the stuff we're doing, uh, including the five debates coming up um, next month into March. Um, that's how we do it. So we appreciate you doing that. And thank you very much for that. All right. Um, so, uh, Dr. Riccardi from Master Seminary posted a uh, lengthy thread. Evidently, he does not have his blue check mark um, on Twitter regarding canonicism. Now, there's all these all this stuffs going on in the world right now, and. We, we we literally have insanity running through the streets. We have we have New York City closing public high schools to use those high schools to house invaders that have been invited here by the Biden regime. Um, they they've just they've just been invited. Come on in. We'll uh, 
Oh, and in California, California, what a wonderful land California is. They're offering sex transition surgeries for illegal aliens. Isn't that lovely? At taxpayer expense, it's great. It, I mean, I, I, I sit here and think about if, if my mom came back today. My mom died in 2010, so she, she's been gone um, as of yesterday. As of yesterday, she died um, January 10th, 2010. And so um, she's, she's been gone for 14 years now. And uh, if she came back today, I mean, just 14 years is not a long period of time as far as human history is concerned. I, I just, the way she would look at me, if I even tried, to explain to her what has happened in the past 14 years. She would go, that's not possible. Son, that son, that couldn't that couldn't happen. Um and I wish she was right. Um, but I could I can just see the look on her face. I can I can hear her voice. I am very thankful I can still hear my mom's voice 14 years after she died. Um I'm I'm very thankful for that. Anyway. Uh, it is hard for those of us with this much snow on, I was going to say the roof, but that doesn't work, um, on the chin, uh, to, to even conceive of the stupidity of what is happening in Western culture, the, the, the self-destructive insanity. And so you, you look at this kind of stuff, and you go, with all this stuff happening, why should we be talking about incredibly obscure theological teachings. Well, the broad topic of the reality of the incarnation and the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, absolutely central to dealing with all the rest of this stuff. Why? I've used the illustration many times. I think it's a good illustration. Um, when When I said on the Dr. Drew show back in 2016, I quoted Jesus from Matthew chapter 19 in regards to, from the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And when the guy pushed back and said, well, you know, that's that's Jesus, but there's also for the religions. And I'm like, except that he prophesied his death, burial, and resurrection, and then died, was buried, and was risen, and enthroned on high. And when you can do that, we'll worry about your opinion. Until then, he's got the final say. Who Christ is is central to all of the culture war, which is culture war. There's a lot of stuff in culture war, which is just silly. Okay. There there's, there's people that are just trying to get clicks by taking shots at people that they shouldn't be taking shots at and not really accomplishing it in the process. But when you think about it, when we're talking abortion, um, genetic manipulation, uh, this kind of fundamental, you know, what's a male, what's a female, what's a family, so on and so forth. That's not just quote-unquote culture war. That's the n- necessary conflict that exists between the claims of Christ and a rebellious, sinful world. And fundamentalism, a lot of evangelicalism, has done everything that it can do 
to run and hide from that battle for a long, long time. And now a lot of people are going, hey, you know, we've we can't do that. We've got to do this. We've got to do something differently. But doing making the shift in a balanced and mature way can be a bit challenging. All of that goes back to why should we think we have anything to say to the world in the first place? Well, because um, the creator entered the world and taught us and established a church and gave us his word and his spirit. And so he's enthroned in heaven and the scripture warns kings and judges not to rebel against him lest they engender his wrath. That was the part that was pretty much missing, to be honest with you, from my theology for a long, long time. He was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's just, <laughs> the world gets to do whatever it wants to do. You know, God will just do the big stuff. And you know, no, Psalm 2, it's right there. We read it, but just sort of skipped over it. You know, kiss the sun, lest his wrath is kindled against you. And so what we believe about Christ, look, a Unitarian does not have the same foundation of proclaiming the Lordship of Christ that a Trinitarian has. A merely human Jesus has never, Unitarianism has never developed a, um, a, a theology of Lordship that would speak to the world with any kind of authority or power. Just never has. Never has. And so, who we believe Jesus is, is vitally important. If Jesus is Michael the Archangel, game over, completely different religion. No question about it. No question about it. But what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing people who are engaging um really fine distinctions uses of language that are that are not have nothing to do with denying the deity of Christ or anything like that but you need to say it the way my group says you need to say it or it's just full on heresy and you're to be marked out and and we're not to have anything to do with you and it's extremely divisive um and, it, and it's based upon speculation. It's not based upon, if you were to press them, okay, prove that biblically. Well, so-and-so said it in their systematic theology. Well, that's great, but did they prove it biblically? And so we're, we're seeing this kind of stuff happening, and there's reasons for a lot of it. Now, um, Dr. Riccardi teaches at the Master's Seminary, and... For years and years and years, we've had just wonderful relationship um, with all the people over there, um, done cooperated in doing all sorts of things. The only thing we haven't ever, ever done, TMS and, and, and Grace, the, the church, they've never believed in debates. And that's fine. That, that didn't keep them from having me in to speak and do stuff like that, but we just never, you know, it was just known to all all sides, um, that that was not something that they believed in. Uh, you know, it was expressed to me, we don't believe that you should give a platform 
uh, to false teachers in any context, even if it's in the context of refuting them. And, uh, you know, my response would be, well, okay. Um, the Apostle Paul certainly did not bind and gag the people he was debating um, in the in the marketplace, uh, in the ancient church, in the primitive church. Um, he was demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, and that means the other side got to be heard too. And so, um, okay, but there is, it's part of Grace's fundamentalistic background, and that's still a part of, of things, the dispensationalism, the fundamentalism. Um, you don't you don't give false teachers a hearing, um, which unfortunately, not for TMS, but in most of fundamentalism, means you don't worry much at all about accurately representing the other side either. And that becomes a problem when your people go out and encounter the people from the other side, and they have all sorts of false ideas about what they believe and stuff like that, and that, that causes a problem. But anyway, so... There was, the, you know, the idea was, you know, we won't do the debate type of stuff, but, you know, I, I taught for TMAI overseas in Irpin and around Europe, a number of different nations in Europe uh, over the years, had wonderful relationships, um, and, you know, I haven't changed. Well, I guess you can say, well, yeah, but you you became a post-millennialist. No, no, no. Okay. I was a unconvinced... I, I, I was a... Uh, let's put it this way. I was a dispassionate amillennialist, um, and uh, so okay, that's that's about it. Uh, ev on everything else, biblical sufficiency, Trinity, my views have not changed in the slightest. And so, what happened? I think, and it, this is how it's been explained to me by a number of different people. So I won't name names or anything like that, but. What what happened was the EFS controversy in 2016, and starting oh I th I think it was April May if I recall correctly, there were a series of blog articles that just started um, lobbing um, bombs uh, toward uh, Bruce Ware and other proponents of. Eternal Functional Subordination, or ESS, Eternal Subordination of the Sun, or all the different terminologies and perspectives. And um, I remember very clearly uh, that July when, when I uh, rode uh, the uh, double-triple bypass ride. Um, the, in the first leg, the first climb, I was riding with a pastor friend, and we're sitting there, we're uh, climbing this mountain, talking about EFS, and I, I, I remember sort of looking around and seeing the looks on people's faces <laughs> as we, you know, they'd pass us or we'd pass them, and they're hearing what we're talking about, and they're like, because that's really an unusual context. <laughs> you know, you're, you're at 11,000 feet above sea level, and you're gasping for air, and you're talking about stuff like the Trinity. It, it's a little bit weird. But anyway, um, I, I remember we did some, we didn't jump into the middle of this thing. We've never, it, it's it's not been a situation like, oh, well, you know, I wrote a book on the Trinity, so we just need to jump it right in the middle of this. No, I'm, I'm sitting here, um, you know, going, okay, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, 
I think it had been, had it been the year before? I think it may have just been the year before. I think it might, might have been 2015. Um, that we had, uh, at the G3 conference, that we had, and it was still, that was, I think it was the year before it went to the big, um, you know, became real big. It was still in the church at that time. Bruce Ware was one of the people speaking on the Trinity, as was I. And I sensed the differences between us at that point in time. Um, but it never crossed my mind to, you know, identify him as a heretic. Or and that's what was very, very quickly in 2016. It was charges of heresy were being thrown around and everything else. And what I've been told happened is that for a lot of people at Master's, they felt they did not even have the vocabulary to engage the topic. It was not something that the seminary had been dealing with. And then, in fact, the reality was there was sort of a default acceptance of EFS by lots and lots of people, even though are you accepting something when you're not even sure what the what the issues are? You, you know, has it if it hasn't been identified, how many people in 2015 would have just immediately heard EFS and gone, ah, eternal functional subordination? Um, probably not all that many. Um, and so it seems to me that there has been a uh, sort of whiplash response to the events that are now uh, coming up on eight years in the past. And the chosen methodology of denying EFS and purging EFS from, um, well, my, my, my understanding is there have been doctrinal statements that have been edited and changed, um, stuff on websites and sermons from John MacArthur uh, that have had to be altered. Um, because of not using the proper language, you see. And look, I get, you know, any school that wants to take a position on something, fine. Um, it just, from my perspective, uh, especially given the background of the school and the church, the only way to really address this is biblically. Not from some, you know, I mean... Grace Community Church does not use the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's not, it's not a confessional church in that sense. And so to, to decide to take this rigorous uh, perspective that would include util utilizing materials from James Dolezal and, and people like that um, just strikes me as very, very strange, very odd. And so what's happened over the past couple of years is not all the faculty members, but some faculty members have uh, decided that I'm a, a big bad guy. Um, and as a result, have told students that, well, he believes this, he believes that. There, there have been students who have asked me, you know, I've, I've been told that you, you hold EFS. It's like, no one can say that. No, no, no one with a semblance of honesty. Because you can go back to 2016. You can go back to the summer of 2016 and 
listen to the dividing lines. We brought the issue up because it was exploding all over the place. And we talked about it. And, um, you know, I I said I, I agree that EFS is dangerous in the sense that um, I have, for pretty much all of my public ministry, at least since, oh, at least since 89, I would say, have openly aligned myself with the reformed minority, uh, knowingly so, in holding to John Calvin's enunciation uh, of the Son as autotheos, as God in and of himself. This is over against the uh, post-Nicene orthodoxy um, that again, I this is one of the reasons I go, have we really thought through um, creeds and confessions and stuff like that and why we draw the lines, where we draw them? Are we even being semi-consistent in how we do this? But after Nicaea and, and around the time of Chalcedon, um, you have the development of doctrinal stances, not so much by creeds and confessions and councils, um, but by name. So, the two Gregories, Basil, uh, John Chrysostom, to a lesser extent, uh, Augustine, obviously. Um, these men and their work become the very definition of what orthodoxy is. Fact of the matter is, we we don't believe everything that they said in all sorts of areas. We demur as evangelical Protestants from many of their practices and especially soteriological issues and things like that. But when it comes to theology proper, the doctrine of God, specifically Christology-related issues, then it's like, well, you can't question anything that any of them said, even though there were differences of emphasis and things like that between them once you start digging into it. But anyway. So, um, it, it just seems like the best way um, to deal with something like EFS is to do so from a biblical perspective. If you're, if you're going to take a stand and say, we think this is dangerous. And so it's, so we're not we're, we're talking about over here. If you're going to be where I think the vast majority of people are in the middle where they're they're going, well, I don't I don't agree, but I, I want to be clear and generous in why I don't agree and I want to hear what the other side has to say. Uh, and I want to I don't want to um, misrepresent them. I don't want to um, in any way, uh, just kick everybody out of the kingdom unless they dot the I's and cross the T's the exact same way that I do. And so uh, I think most people go, well, I can... My, my real concern is if taken to its final conclusion, if pressed, and for me, when something is pressed, it's being pressed in debate, going outside of the realm of our own fellowships and presenting this in regards to 
Islam and Mormonism and Unitarianism and, and everything else, that's where your position is going to be pressed. There's going to be stuff that's going to come against it. Um, my concern is that if you press that in that context, it becomes inconsistent. But we have to have conversation about that because someone might say, no, it won't become inconsistent because of this, because of that. A lot of the early stuff, well, actually most of the stuff, in 2016, there wasn't any willingness to have that kind of conversation at all. It was just, ting, ting, boom, um, that, that type of stuff, unfortunately. Uh, so another opportunity for actually enriching and deepening our theology sort of got passed over in, in the process. So anyway, fast forward a bit. Um, the charge of canonicism. So we're not talking about EFS now. But, but the issue on canonicism has come out from the same stuff. So you can really trace the um, impassibility controversy from, say, 2010 to 2013, 2014, amongst Reformed Baptists. And that gives rise to um, resourcement movements. And that gives rise to the... Um, a hyper-emphasis upon a philosophical definition of simplicity, um, which then gives rise to um, inseparable operations, which almost nobody had any idea what in the world that was. Um, didn't write books about it, anything else, but now it's the definition of, of orthodoxy. And in the midst of all this comes this issue of canonicism and the accusations against me of being a canonicist. What is all that from? Well, kanao, of course, is the term that is used by the Apostle Paul. He uses it a number of times. He never uses it literally. Um, but it is used in Philippians chapter 2 when the Son empties himself. He makes himself of no reputation. Notice that it's the Son doing this. It's not something that's being done to the Son. Um, reflexive pronoun being used there. Um, and so, back in... 96, 97, when I wrote uh, The Forgotten Trinity, came out in 98, as I recall. Um, you read my exegesis of Philippians 2, a discussion of this. And then I wrote a lengthy article for the CRI Journal, uh, which interacted with a number of different positions, including Dan Wallace's position, which now, using the emphasis we make today, was, it was, and I think still is, an EFS position. Um, I interacted with, because that was what Dan and I had, Dan and I stood at the NET table at that 96, 98, 98 um, evangelical theological meeting. And that's what we were talking about. We, we stood there for a lengthy period of time, at least an hour. Um, debating the Greek of the Carmen Christi. And the specific issue was in regards to that, that topic. Um, what's, what's the nature of Harpagmas and um, the relationship between the Father and the Son, everything else. And I, I even sent him the article and said, I, I want to make sure that I'm accurately representing you. And, and he wrote back with a couple of suggestions and I made the changes and, 
and uh, then said, he said, hey, that's, that's great. Uh, thank you for taking the time to accurately represent me. And so I don't remember what year that came out, um, but it was, it was a long time ago. Um, and so I dealt with these issues. I first ran into the term canonicism probably uh, graduated 89, so 87, 88. Um, may have been before that because I was dealing with Trinitarian issues before that, but it, I very clearly remember uh, Fortman's book in seminary um, talking about canonicism and, and, and stuff like that. And of course, I'm already dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm already dealing with Mormonism, uh, already engaging all that stuff at, at that point in time and back then. And so no one can give you any kind of official definition. I mean, if you look at Horton's definition, it almost limits things to uh, forms of Eutychianism. If you're not familiar with Eutychianism, uh, if you remember the major Christological errors, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, Apollinarianism. I've used the hand thing many times to try to explain that. But Eutychianism is a mixture where there is an inter intermingling of the divine, the human, and Christ, so that he's not fully God, not fully man, but a new mixture that's never existed before. And of course, that's in opposition to the hypostatic union, where you have two natures that are not intermingled. There's nothing removed from one, replaced by the other, Apollinarianism. Uh, there's nothing separated out uh, in Nestorianism, um, whether Nestorius actually believed that or not, it's another issue. But um, so, if if you look at that particular uh, definition, then uh, obviously the, the large majority of people that are being accused of canonicism wouldn't wouldn't qualify. But what we have now is. It, up until this time period, talking about the, the veiling of certain aspects of the divine nature was common language. You can, you can fill pages with people going all the way back that have used terms veiling, hiding, because you, everybody has to. Everybody has to. Oh, by the way, before I get to that, um, I defined especially in the CI article, I defined the incarnation in and the emptying in terms of addition rather than subtraction. So long before any of these modern guys um, did that, I did that. And I did that because of why? Because of Philippians 2. Um, I remember I was on, um, was it Issues Etc.? Is that the Lutheran guy? Okay, Issues Etc. Um, had me, I've got a cat checking out my, my truck right now. I'm just hoping he doesn't all of a sudden disappear into the, I can't tell from this, this angle, the sun's back there, so I have no idea. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, he's, he's between the back wheels right now, so I just want to make sure he doesn't stay there. Um, anyway, yes, I am watching the parking lot. <laughs> if you see me looking over here, it's, um, 
because we live in Phoenix. <laughs> and if you have a, a truck, uh, it can get to Mexico real fast. Uh, even though Mexico is coming here. So it doesn't, you know, does, is it really going to matter anymore? Anyways, what was I, I, I talking about? Um, see, the cat got me. Uh, the, the the cat running around underneath my truck out there uh, got me all discombobulated. Um, the article that I wrote for Sierra, the CRI Journal, when uh, Issues Etc. had me on, the I think it was Todd. Todd Wilkin, is that the name? Anyways, he just loved the translation that I provided of the Carmen Christie. I did I did put a lot of work into it. And I remember one of the things he really appreciated was I, I really appreciate how you've by your translation, you're emphasizing that the emptying was by taking on the human nature. So it was making himself a new reputation. It wasn't changing the divine nature, but the son had to become incarnate to be able to give his life. He had to live a true human life. And so I emphasized that in the translation. And so my emphasis came from exegesis. It came from the biblical text. I wasn't going, well, Gregory of Nyssa said, and so I need to say, uh, well, okay, you know, um, Gregory's brilliant in many, many areas, but not nearly as brilliant as scripture. Um, and so that's why I took the position that I did. And I'm doing this in defense of the deity of Christ against Unitarians, against polytheists, you know, all of these types of, of things that I'm dealing with on a regular basis. Um, and so kenosis, as I would understand it, involves a fundamental change in the divine nature in the incarnation. So I had a student once, I remember very clearly, even which classroom we were in, in Mill Valley, at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, we were somewhere in this particular area of discussion, and I, uh, I remember he, he said, well, if, if we really believe this, then we have to believe that that God changed. And I remember he and I had quite an interesting back and forth uh, conversation in class over that very issue. And I was like, no, 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 no. Um, and he was rather insistent that yes, yes, yes. So it, 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 it was an interesting um, thing. And I was going, uh, no, uh, there is, there is a purpose for the incarnation. And that purpose um, must be fulfilled. The Son will do what the Son needs to do to fulfill that, but without ceasing to be God. Um, and I said, so for example, obviously his glory is hidden with the exception of the transfiguration. Now, one of the Problems I've got with Riccardi's list here. Um, glory is just as definitional of the divine being as omniscience or omnipotence. Um, and so it, it seems to me that in the current situation where we, we sort of have people deciding that they get to define these things on their own, um, 
there needs to be room to, to push back and 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 go. Uh, you really want to go that far? Do you really want to um, insist in such a uh, in saying? Well, for example, all this has gone back to part of the connection to Matthew twenty four thirty six. And my simple observation, which I've yet to have anybody really provide any response to, I I threw it out there and I said, here's what the other side could say about a consistent use of sun, sun language, in Matthew. How do you respond? Crickets! Absolute crickets! And the reason to me is obvious. You guys don't take the people on that I take on. You just don't. As long as you keep it in-house, you can ignore all that stuff. I can't. And so all I've done for years, for decades, has been to go, this is a really tough passage. It's raised by all sorts of folks. And you can't just simply dismiss it on the basis of, well, our theology from our creeds and confessions says that this text can't say that. Because I can't turn around and do that when the other side does it. The other side has creeds and confessions. Did you, did you know that the Socinians have a catechism? What if I were to present a passage of Scripture? Let's just, for the fun of it, make it um, Titus 2.13. Granville Sharp construction there. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What if I were to present that to a Socinian who denies the deity of Christ? And he were to say, well, that text can't mean that because section 7 of article 3 in our confession says this. What are you going to do? I know what I'm going to do, but the only way I can do it is if I am consistent and don't turn around and do the same thing myself. So I can't go to Matthew 24, 36 and say, well, it can't mean that because of this, 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 and this. Not biblical teachings, but this person said this and that person said that and da 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 If I do that, then they're free game to use whatever source they have. It just reminds me so much of the uh, statement of Augustine in writing to Maximum the Arian, and he says, I cannot quote the authority of Nicaea against you, just as you cannot quote the authority of Ariminum, which was a post-Nicene semi-Arian council during the Arian ascendancy after Nicaea, uh, against me. Let us come to that which we both agree on, and that is the holy and inspired scriptures. There, that's my whole point. That's my whole point. So, your exegesis of Matthew 24, 36 has to be, has to take into consideration those issues. And hence, I have just said all along, well, you know, it's it's a tough passage. I've always thought that it would be really convenient. And in fact, I had a guy um, last week on Twitter. I, I may not get through this today. Uh, or I may only get started today and have to finish it up. Because I have a I have a a meeting after this. Uh, I had a guy on Twitter last week saying that the whole the, the it's easy to deal with Matthew twenty four thirty six. 
You just got to recognize it's all about weddings. You saw that? Yeah, you saw it. It's all about weddings. And so uh, only the father knows means that only the father gets to determine the time. Uh, and it's it's the time of the wedding, the time of the, you know, the, all this Jewish wedding stuff. I looked at the link that he gave and stuff, and I'm like, well, I have always thought that the easiest way, the way, the way you could deal with it would be to say that the father knows only in the sense of establishing. Now, you could say that raises some interesting theological issues, maybe. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've thought that many, many times and just gone, it's not defensible. Uh, you're, you're, you're sort of begging the question here. And how, how could you even begin to explain that in, in the context of someone who doesn't accept your starting presuppositions as to what orthodoxy is and stuff like that? So, but I've always, I've, I've thought about that. But what I've said is that these are the words of the incarnate son. And so what people say is, oh, the only, you got to use part of exegesis. And this is, look, it is the standard explanation. Not of people who take this out there, but internally, that this is only referring to the human nature of Christ. That Christ in his human nature did not know, which means that, for some reason, the Son, as the eternal Son, the divine nature, did not communicate this knowledge to the human nature. Now, already, we're getting into speculation that clearly Matthew 24 is not even trying to talk about. But, you can quote all sorts of people who've, who've said, this is, this is just the Son... Speaking as a son, I go, okay, if you want to interpret that way, how do you defend that against someone who then says, oh, so we're to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the human nature of Christ and of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? That's the same book. It's the Son. Um, there are a number of places in Matthew where Son is used of the divine person. How do you make the distinction? Show me where you get the distinction. They won't even try. I get it from my confessions. That doesn't work. Well, it's all we got. Well, you just abandoned solo scriptura. Congratulations. So I try to keep telling you. So I've said, well, you know, um, it's possible that for the purpose of accomplishing his role as Messiah and sacrifice, that the Son, speaking of the Son in the way that the Son speaks in Matthew, uh, veils that knowledge. And people go, nope, can't happen, because the Son always has to be omniscient. The Divine Son always has to be omniscient. Can't, can't be anything other. Does the Divine Son always have to be glorious? Is that just as definitional of the Divine Nature? And if the glory was hidden, why couldn't the knowledge? Nope, can't do it, can't do it. Because they differentiate. They somehow, I've, I've never seen a biblical argument, they somehow go, the, the glory of the divine nature 
is different than the knowledge of the divine nature. The knowledge of the divine nature cannot be veiled for any reason. I didn't say destroyed, uh, anything like that, in the exact same way that glory. And I don't care who you are. It's sad. I listen to these guys because there's been all these articles they've been throwing out there about canonicism and stuff like that. And look, there's there are people who embrace canonicism without knowing, with a, a heretical form of canonicism, a progressivist form. There's main, mainstream, well, mainstream denominations anymore don't even argue about it because they don't actually believe in the deity of Christ to begin with. But when they were in the progressivist mode and, and trying to change those denominations, this was big stuff. This was this was very this was very common. I I get it. Uh, but it's not some major issue for the vast majority of us. And they've used that kind of language. The the canonicists they're talking about a fundamental change in the divine nature. I'm not. No more than anything else in the incarnation. But there's always got to be balance because you can go so far to the other side that you no longer have a real incarnation. That Jesus isn't truly the God-man. He's the God-man. There has to be balance. And where do you get the balance from? You get the balance from Scripture. That's the one thing that doesn't change. You don't get the balance from, well, this person said this, and that person said that, and that person said that, and that built up a tradition that becomes a great tradition over time, and blah, 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 blah. That, that's, that, that's, that ain't going to work. It's not going to fly in a debate. And the real problem is, you don't actually believe it. If you're a Baptist and a Protestant. Or if you're a Pato Baptist Protestant who does not believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of infant baptism for remission of original sin and state of grace and all the rest of that stuff. Which is all us Reformed folks. At least I thought so. So, with that as a background, I might as well get to this. I, I'm not going to get through all of it. Um, Dr. Riccardi says, functional canonic Christology teaches not that Christ surrendered the attributes themselves, but limited them in some sense, or just curtailed their use function during his humiliation. This is serious Christological error. Okay, so John MacArthur was guilty of serious Christological error during his entire ministry, because the the, the sermons, the transcripts, thankfully, AI hasn't gotten around to changing yet. <laughs> and so, again, now we have, okay... So what terms do you want to use? Because I, I've read Dolezal's article. If you don't like veiling, all they're doing is coming up with other terms that mean the same thing. You, you have to deal with the reality that the sun did something. You've got to deal with what kenosis means. And I say you define kenosis on the basis of of Paul's theology. New Testament as a whole, yes. But first, you start with Paul. He's the one using it. What does he say? How does he present this? And then you flesh that out with the gospel and everything else that comes that comes from that. But you, you have to deal with it. You can't just say, nothing happened. 
So this is saying that you are in serious Christological error if you say there is limiting of the divine attributes in the incarnation. And I go, uh, you just made everybody a Christological heretic going all the way back in history. You, everybody has to, has to deal with this. This is serious Christological error. The kenosis of Philippians 2.7 is not a surrender, a divesture, a limitation, or a laying aside of any aspect of the Son's divine existence. Again, um, it is not a, the, the Son does not cease to be the Son. The question is, what is the manifestation of all of the divine attributes in the Incarnation? We know, beyond question, no one can argue this, that there is the fundamental definitional reality of the glory of Yahweh that is veiled in the sun. He did not walk through the streets of Jerusalem glowing in the dark. No one was consumed in his presence. Okay? So, there it is. That's the refutation of this hyper-limitation. It's done. It's just, just chuck it. Um, or a laying aside of any aspect of the Son's divine existence. What does laying aside mean? Is that non-exercise during the incarnation? Is there is there no... Did the Son in no way have any reliance upon the Spirit of God? At all? I, I know that full-on canonicists, like... Um, guy at uh, Bethel, whatever his name is. Um, yes, Johnson. I know they take that. That's their big thing. Is that Jesus rely on the Spirit, and then therefore we can rely on the Spirit in the same way that Jesus relied on the Spirit, and the whole nine the whole nine yards, so that every miraculous thing that Jesus does is just dependence upon the Spirit. And of course, you know, Jesus feels power coming out of himself when the woman touches him, all the way. So you, that's not a balanced perspective. But there's, but there's no relationship at all in in the incarnation in regards to it, it, the spirit of God. Again, um, instead, it is a taking an assumption of a distinct essence, a human one, by means of which such limitations can be experienced. What does that mean? What what? by means of which such limitations can be experienced. How is that different than saying there's a veiling? I'm saying that by taking on a distinct essence, a human one, such limitations were experienced. <laughs> That's what veiling means. We are arguing over minutiae. And yet, willing to say, ah, but you, you're an error. You are a heretic if you don't agree with my terminology. Oh, okay, all right. The text doesn't say he emptied himself of something, but that he emptied himself. That is, he nullified himself or made himself of no reputation, Philippians 2.7, by taking on the form of a slave, i.e. assuming human nature. Exactly what's in the Forgotten Trinity and in the CRI article. So any construal of the Incarnation as a net negative where the Son ceases to be or do something proper to His divine existence is a species of canonic error. I agree. Don't believe, don't believe anything like it. 
I've made that very clear. It's not a net negative. It is a net positive. He takes on a perfect... Listen to my debate. Uh, Can God become man? 2011, from University of New South Wales. I would love to see all of the folks that are so... Cross the T, dot the I. I'd love to see you take on some of these people. I really... The, the cross-examination would be painful, but educational. Really would be. Um, to say something like, Christ limited the use of his omniscience in his incarnation is to deny what cannot be denied, his true deity, in order to affirm what must be affirmed, his true humanity. Now think, let's, let's change that. To say something like, Christ limited the expression of his glory in his incarnation is to deny what cannot be denied, his true deity, in order to affirm what must be affirmed as true humanity. And that's exactly what everybody has to do. So obviously this argument isn't true. It's not true. Um, what, what else could be said? So, so the, the affirmation is, Christ, in the incarnation, could not limit the use of any divine attribute. I'd say the incarnation itself requires a self a, a, a self-limitation, not a changing of the divine nature, but but the fundamental idea here is no, God can't do that. That's what the Muslims say. That's what the Muslims say. We don't want to go there. And I know he's not going there. This is a nice man. He's a good man. He's a good young scholar. But you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. It is impossible for God to limit his godness because part of what it means to be God is to be infinite and unlimitable. Uh, You really want to go there? Because we're not talking about a change in the divine essence. We're talking about expression here. We're talking about demonstration. We're talking about um, what does it mean to be incarnate? And shouldn't we all be sitting here going, you know, <laughs> there is only one source for us to answer any questions on this subject. And it's right here. And may I suggest to you that a lot of post-Nicene theological speculation doesn't believe this is enough and goes way beyond Way beyond this. In fact, um, let me, uh, I, I need to, I, I put this, go over here. Um, this is a quotation that I want to make sure we get into today. I think I could still make it if I go to 4.30. So, um, this is a quotation from the works of the Reverend John Howe, Puritan writer, this is published in 1848, but he was back in the 1700s. Listen, this is on the subject of simplicity. So very closely related um, theological expression. Forgive the language, but it's old, older, not old English at all, but uh, older form of modern English. Whatsoever simplicity, you know, the doctrine of simplicity, God is not made up of parts and pieces that are lesser than himself. You can't take a part away from God, may God, and God, God anymore. 
But as we talked about with Jeffrey Johnson, there is a biblical doctrine of simplicity and there's a philosophical doctrine of simplicity. Whatsoever simplicity the ever-blessed God hath, by any express revelation claimed to himself, or can by evident and irrefragable reason be demonstrated to belong to him, as a perfection, we ought humbly and with all possible reverence and adoration to ascribe to him. But such simplicity as he hath not claimed, as is arbitrarily ascribed to him by overbold and adventurous intruders into the deep and most profound arcana of the divine nature, think about that, such as can never be proved to belong to him, or to be any real perfection, such as would prove an imperfection and a blemish, would render the divine nature less intelligible, ding, 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 more impossible to be so far conceived as is requisite, as would discompose and disturb our minds, confound our conceptions, make our apprehensions of his other known perfections less distinct or inconsistent, render him less adorable or less an object of religion, or such as is manifestly irreconcilable with his plain affirmations concerning himself, which I would argue you can only get from here, we ought not to impose it upon ourselves, or be so far imposed upon as to inscribe to him such simplicity. Man, there's a lot there. Wish I had more time to expand on it. It would be an over-officious and too meanly servile religiousness. <laughs> Man, they could put the words together. To be awed by the sophistry of presumptuous scholastic wits into a subscription to their confident determinations concerning the being of God. That such and such things are necessary or impossible thereto, beyond what the plain, undisguised reason of things, or his own express words do evince, to imagine a sacredness in their rash conclusions, so as to be afraid of searching into them, or of examining whether they have any firm and solid ground or bottom, to allow the schools the making of our Bible, or the forming of our creed. This is, this is against scholasticism. This is against the schoolmen, primarily. Who license and even sport themselves to, philosoph- to f- philosophize upon the nature of God with as petulant and irreverent a liberty as they would upon a worm or any the meanest insect, while yet they can pronounce little with certainty even concerning that hath nothing in it either of the Christian or the man. It will become as well as concern us to disencumber our minds and release them from the entanglements of their unproved dictates, whatsoever authority they may have acquired, only by having been long and commonly taken for granted. Think about that. Only by having been long and commonly taken for granted. How many speculative conclusions are held in scholasticism simply because they have been long 
and commonly taken for granted. You know how you find out? Get outside the walls and take the message to the world. Then you'll find out real fast. The more reverence we have of God, the less we are to have for such men as have themselves expressed little. Um, okay. I, now, I was not, by reading that, applying that to Mike Riccardi. But I am expressing the terminology that he is using in regards to, for example, speculative conclusions that are not forced upon us by Scripture, and that's what we get into the, the, the good and necessary consequences, um, that would render the divine nature less intelligible. God didn't give us his word for us to muddle it with our brainiac um, categorizations of philosophical systems. And so I would say, getting back to canonicism, that the ultimate has to be found here. And that until, especially my critics, answer the challenge that I've, I've read on this program and I've posted. I wrote an article last year, I think it was October of 22, on reform biblicism. And I included, or no, 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 no. this was the one titled uh, Too Long for a Twitter Thread. Sorry, there's two different ones. Too Long for a Twitter Thread. It's on the Theology Matters blog. And I gave a paragraph where someone can go to Matthew and go, so what you're saying is, this means this, that means that, and you're, you're reading in a definition of son that you're not reading out of the text, you're reading into the text. How do you respond to that? No one has. Until you do. Until you do. You're making things, um, you're making the divine nature less intelligible, not more intelligible. Okay. Um, the son did not restrict or limit or dial back his infinity so he could sell, fit himself into finite humanity. He assumed finite humanity into personal union with his infinite deity and subsisted in two whole, perfect, and distinct natures right alongside one another. I agree. But why use infinity? Why not use glory? Because you can't because that was limited for the purpose of accomplishing the, what the incarnation is to accomplish. Right? Tell me where I'm wrong. I, I want to hear. I, I keep hearing people say, well, but it, that's, that's not what this word... I don't care. Tell me where I'm wrong biblically. Please? Think we can do that? I, we're supposed to be able to do that. Right? He did not become less God in order to be man. Agreed. So, we must say the, of the incarnate Son, he is infinite according to his deity. At the same time, he is finite according to his humanity. It would be wrong to say the Son limited his infinity during his incarnation. Did the Son limit the expression of his glory during the incarnation? Yes or no? Yes or no? Is gloriousness, is glory definitional of the divine being? Yes or no? That, that's... 
For the same reason, it is wrong to say the Son limited his omniscience in his incarnation. God cannot limit his omniscience because omniscience is essential to the infinite perfections of being God. Gloriousness isn't? Of course it is. Of course it is. If a person is not omniscient, he may be many things, but he is not God. So if a person is not glorious, he may be many things, but he's not God. So the Son did not restrict or limit or dial back his omniscience so he could fit himself into ignorant humanity. He assumed finite ignorance into personal union with his infinite omniscience and subsisted in two whole perfect and distinct natures right along one another. Again, that's a nice theological statement. But it's not dealing with... This is meant to be... This is meant to be... No, Matthew 24, 36 cannot mean that because of this. That's what the argument is. And again, I have... How many times do I have to say? This is a really difficult text. But... I can't take this kind of theology outside of the church and say, you need to accept this before you can then understand what Matthew 24, 36 is saying. Because they can turn around and say, well, then you need to accept this so you can understand what Titus 2, 13 is saying. Right? And I guess the only response to that is to say, well... We, we don't have to worry about, you know, taking this stuff outside. We just need to have it nice and neat and tidy for us. In other words, because Jesus is truly and fully God and truly and fully man, Scripture makes statements about him, the whole person, that are true only because of one or the other nature. That doesn't mean that an opposite statement isn't true according to the nature. So this is your standard. Again, the confession itself says, there are times when Scripture speaks this way. I agree! Prove it in Matthew 24, 36! You can't just quote from the Westminster or the London Baptist. You have to demonstrate that in that context, you're deriving your interpretation from that. And if you don't see that if you don't do that, you will fundamentally, eventually have to capitulate to the authority of external Develop traditions over time. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. So yes, Scripture makes statements about him, the whole person, that are true only because of one or the other nature. Agreed. And the context will show you that. But you're taking this and making it the overarching interpretive principle rather than doing what you have to do which is demonstrating that my partitive exegesis in Matthew 24 to 36 is actually drawn, drawn from Matthew 24, 36. And I think, I, I think the honest folks in the great tradition movement would say, we can't do that and we won't try. I think the honest folks would do that. That's, what I, that's, that's why I'm, I'm ringing this big old bell and saying to the guys at Masters, you can't go there without changing who you've always been. You can't go there. I know who's trying to drag you there. I know their names. I know when you've met. <laughs> but you can't go there. You won't be consistent. You won't be consistent. Now, again, maybe, you know, I keep going, and I think it's important to be consistent. 
But why? Because I want to take this message outside of our little confines. And it's got to be consistent out there because those people out there are smart and they will see the inconsistencies. Sometimes you get them right next to each other. Acts 20, 28 speaks of the blood of God. Incarnational. Yep, you bet. Guy's a spirit and has no blood. There, Paul predicates attributes of deity and attributes of attributes of humanity, blood, to the same person, Jesus, according to his distinct natures. Yep, that's clearly what you have in what the incarnation is. No two ways about it. And I, he doesn't use uh, the one that I I think is the best. Um, and that that is they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. Lord of Glory is obvious deity language. You can't crucify the Lord of Glory. But you could. Because of the incarnation. Because it was real. Because he truly became man. So in John 16.30, he is said to know all things. And in Mark 13.32, he is said to be ignorant of the time of his return. Those aren't contradictory. John affirms something that is proper to his deity, and Mark affirms something that is proper to his humanity. Okay, but once again, and there's a textual issue there that we won't get into right now, derive it from the context. Pretty do, easy to do with John 16. How do you do it in Mark 13 or Matthew 24? That's the issue. That's the issue. It is wrong, and a species of canonicism, because we now get to define these things uh, for ourselves, to say that one of those things, omniscience or ignorance, must be limited or curtailed in order to say the other one is genuine. In Matthew 24, 36, once again, if what you're saying is, well, um, the Son here, Jesus, when he makes reference to the Son, is making reference to the human nature. Okay? All I've been saying all along. I am not dogmatic on my interpretation of Matthew 24, 36. I am dogmatic on you having to give an exegesis of Matthew 24, 36. That's the difference between us. You guys aren't giving an exegesis. You're giving a theologus. <laughs> a theologus. <laughs> you're, you're, you're telling us what your theology says the text must say. And I'm sitting here going, you can't do that and be consistent. That's all I've been saying. That's all I've been saying. You cannot assist. No, I'm not a cannot assist. Jesus' deity was not changed. But you have to believe that he had the power to, whatever term you want to use, veil, limit, not get rid of, but veil or limit his glory to do what he said that he did. His glory is just as definitional as anything else, and you cannot get around that no matter what you do. No matter what you, you can stand on your head, you can spin in circles. You can't get around it. It's just reality. Just reality. So I, I'm sorry that I'm not in the in-group. I'm out here with the lost folks that already have religious beliefs. And I'm trying to go, hey guys, if you ever decide to come out here and help with this stuff, what you're doing in there ain't going to help much. You're, gonna, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to... It's not going to work. I'm trying. Trying. Um, so we have to say that Jesus predict, predicated ignorance of himself according to the properties of his human nature. No, not the human nature is ignorant, 
but the one person, Jesus, could be spoken of as ignorant by virtue of the finitude of his human mind. Except that the divine could reveal supernatural knowledge to that finite mind, right? So why would that particular piece of information be too much for the finitude of his human mind? That, that, that one I don't get, okay? And can we all admit we are way past Matthew 24 or Mark 13 now, right? Can we all, can we all admit that? We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not there anymore. We're, we're four, five, six, seven steps down the road now. Can, can we all admit that? You know, for some folks, they're like, yep, and we always have to be. And again, I go, think about where that's going to lead you. Where is that going to take you? But because he was subsisting in the divine nature at the very same time, it can also be said that he did know the time of his return according to the properties of his divine nature by virtue of the infinity of his divine mind. Look, I understand the theology. But A, you didn't get that from here. Please don't pretend you did. And B, I start going, um, hmm, uh, would render the divine nature less intelligible, more impossible to be so far conceived as is requisite, as would discompose and disturb our minds, confound our conceptions, make our apprehensions of his other known perfections less distinct or inconsistent, render him less adorable or less an object of religion. I'm concerned. I'm concerned that that's where this type of stuff goes. Eventually. It, it Not necessarily in this context, but I, I just remember a young man that I helped uh, when he was in high school and in college, and then he goes off to seminary, and I just remember meeting with him before he left, and I just and, and I said to him, you become a liberal. <laughs> you abandon the foundations that we've been talking about at seminary, and I'm going to get you. <laughs> you know, you'll never see it coming. <laughs> Uh, if, if you fire from more than 500 yards away, you, you, you never you never hear hear the shot. Um, I've just seen it happen so many times. And sadly, what a lot of these guys are doing is when I make that warning, they just just oh, see, there's White saying I'm going to become a Roman Catholic again. I didn't say anything about Roman Catholicism. That's one of the directions you can end up going. Once you lose confidence in Sola Scriptura, yeah, that, that could end up there, orthodoxy and lots of other places. But it's like, why don't you just stop for a second and listen to me? Just, just, you know, I've got a lot of experience with people who have done this. A lot more than you do. A lot more than you do. But you won't listen. I'm not saying Mike Riccardi. I'm talking about the people pushing this stuff. Uh, it's counterintuitive yeah, but it's not contradictory. It's the miracle of the hypostatic union. Okay. I believe in the hypostatic union. Why do I believe in the hypostatic union? Because I believe this, and I have to make sense of this. Why do you believe in the hypostatic union? Why do you believe in the hypostatic union? Is this enough? Or is this only enough to give you broad outlines, and now we need something beyond that? He can know 
and be ignorant of the same fact at the same time. Because he knows it according to the divine nature, and he doesn't know it according to the human nature. And all you got to do is prove that in Matthew 24, 36, that's how you can use the term son. Right? That's what you, you got to do. He says, Calvin agrees. Of course, there's more to this context. We don't have time now. I was going to, wow. Ooh, he, he goes, Calvin, Gregory Nazianzus, and concludes, Canonicism, whether ontological or functional, does not behave consistently with the truths of the hypostatic union, and therefore canonicism should be rejected in all its forms. Well, um, the real question is who gets to define it? And the real question I have to ask of Dr. Riccardi and everybody else is, I thought at the Master's Seminary, this was the final word for definition. Is it still? That's the question. That's the question. And am I being unfair? Am I being unkind? Because I... My, my belief all along has been, I, I, without a doubt, without a doubt, on a Wednesday night, I got to speak at Grace from behind the pulpit. That's how I know that if you lean into it, it moves. <laughs> because it's on that hydraulic thing, and it's not perfectly firm. Huge amount of space. Great, wonderful, but it moves. The night that I spoke there, there wasn't a person in that room or on that staff that would have for a second taken offense at being called a biblicist. And you know it. You know it. And so do I. And so does every graduate of that school. You know it. You know it. Did not expect to do an hour and a half. <laughs> Did not. Should not have taken the time at the beginning. I could have gotten done a little bit faster. Sorry about that. My sincere apologies, but we got through it, and I've got some place to get to now. So thank you for listening to Dividing Line. We'll see you next time. God bless.